All right. Welcome to the Psych Guys podcast, episode 27? Something something like that. All right. Um, so we're going to get into today, how to teach a child to meditate. My name is Dr. Logan Noon. I'm a almost third year psych resident here with my colleague and great friend, Dr. June Chun. Um, we are both residents at Rowan Psychiatry, a Rowan University psychiatry that is. Um, brief reminder to the listeners that this is not personal medical advice, but we are just kind of sharing our opinions, our clinical experiences. But I really had a powerful experience over the weekend that I wanted to share with you and how I was trying to teach this nine-year-old and her parents how to kind of begin this practice of meditation. Um, Initially, kind of the complaint of this kid was mostly ADHD, but also really there were some concerns of anxiety, um, other kind of mood issues as well. I'm just curious, before we kind of get started, have you ever tried to teach a kid how to meditate? Never. Never even attempted. It actually never even crossed my mind. Why? Why? Because I guess... You meditate. I meditate. Sometimes I do. Um, Uh Not as much as I used to. Uh Um, But the main reason would be because, I mean, like you said, we're we're psychiatry residents, right? Um, And in our role, taking care of patients, how often are we really asked um, to talk about other modalities of psychiatric care other than medication? I feel like a majority of the time I spent is... um, you know, I'm, I'm initially doing the interview. My primary motivation is one, to make the feel, uh, patient feel more comfortable and at ease. But at the same time, you know, the end goal is for me to get the diagnostic criteria, evaluate that patient for whatever I think um, is going on psychiatrically. Um, and, you know, whenever I do come up with a, with a reasonable diagnosis, um, my job is to recommend the medication. Right. And because of how complex um, these psychiatric medications can be, um, even even giving good psychiatric med recommendations can be a daunting task at times, which requires a lot of knowledge, a lot of expertise. Um, So I guess just by the nature of being a psychiatry resident and um, training mostly for this job of maintaining um, pharmacology, that's primarily what I've been focused on. Um, but that, that's not to say that I don't see the benefits of meditation. Um, and we talk, we talked about it a lot on this podcast, right? It's not just meditation, but there's also CBT, even things like good sleep hygiene when it comes to ADHD symptoms, because we know like poor sleep can uh, sometimes mimic symptoms of ADHD. Um, mm-hmm. It can also mimic like irritability, right? So it's not to say that I don't have an appreciation for all these other uh, modalities or even ex- external factors that may, um, you know, play a role, a very important role in the presentation we see in front of us. Um, but it might, you know, I've been doing this for two years now, right? Mm-hmm. So in the two years, right, we're going to say that's a limited experience compared to some of the other psychiatrists out there with decades of experience. Um, so in my limited role thus far, I've been primarily focused on my training as a um, primarily a psychiatrist that manages medication. Um, so I just haven't had a chance to, um, you know, explore that aspect yet. Um, but it's, it's, it's one that I hope to dive further into just because I do recognize the value um, and... I'm hoping to learn a lot from you through this episode and kind of see what you're thinking. Okay, good. Um, Because I'm not going to lie. That answer kind of broke my heart a little bit. Um, I feel like maybe the culture of medicine that we know, the economics of medicine that we're a part of, um, heavily influenced that answer. You know, it's like, okay, I'm there to reach a diagnostic criteria. 
Um, and then I'm there to offer a psychiatric medication if it's appropriate, right? Like I know you're not using medication in every single scenario. I, I, I get that. Um, and we are physicians. We are trained. Um, we are the highest trained individuals when it comes to psychiatric uh, medications at the end of the day. You know, we went to four years of medical school, then four years of residency. But I would really argue, you know, our role isn't necessarily to diagnose, but to alleviate suffering. And I would argue that meditation perhaps is one of the most powerful least side effects and can offer an immediate relief in certain scenarios. Because, I mean, a couple of things about what you said. I, I, I hate diagnosis. I think diagnosis is a bunch of bullshit. You know, the DSM changes all the time. I would argue the DSM is partially a financial motive, you know, to collect um, means for the APA. And I'm a, I'm a member of the APA, right? But like, I mean, do we really, there's how many more diagnoses are there today versus 50 years ago? Is, are we really having a, that rapid of a change of mental illness or are we just adding different labels and mild depression, um, moderate or, you know, single episode versus recurrent with or without, without psychotic features. And, you know, I, I just know this is kind of the nature of the diagnostic modality. You know, not all depression is alike. But, you know, I, I do think that we should be focusing on all of the different approaches that can alleviate suffering. Medicine is, of course, one of them. But I really think that we need to start to implement the other roles and the other aspects of treatment that can alleviate suffering, like mindfulness, like exercise, um, and maybe even like other kind of wild modalities, equestrian therapy, surfing, uh, playing basketball, I would even argue, like play therapy. Um, I think all of these things are equally as important to medicine. So I'll, I'll kind of shut up on my rant and let me tell you. Wait, hold on. Hold on, Logan. I okay. need to comment on that. Sure. So don't you feel like, you know, in part, uh, you know, we're in this dynamic healthcare landscape, right? And right. things are changing, right? The only constant is change. And medicine in general has evolved uh, tremendously um, within the past few years um, at, at the minimum. So when we talk about, um, you know, developing roles, don't you feel like things are headed towards more specialization? So for example, um, as a psychiatrist, right, you have a specific role on the team. And it's not to say I don't agree that um, these other modalities such as equestrian therapy, um, yoga, right? I, I see a lot of benefit in that, right? And I think we covered it in previous episodes where I feel really strongly that, you know, compared to an SSRI, um, these non-invasive modalities are, I think they're superior just for the simple reason that on an SSRI, you're only seeing the benefits as long as you're taking the medication. But once you stop, that's really it. You can deal with rebound, um, rebound anxiety, rebound depression versus things like CBT, coping mechanisms, yoga, mindfulness, breathing techniques. These are techniques that you can carry on with you. So no matter where you are in the world, no matter how limited resources are at the time, you can draw um, from your bank of experiences and implement these techniques and help you to feel better in that moment. Mm -hmm. I think, especially going forward, if it hasn't happened already, there's people that are better trained at those modalities. And as things become more and more specialized, I feel like just the structure of the med medical system today is not going to be one where we're incentivized. Um, I, I feel like at a point we're not even going to be allowed to spend time um, doing doing stuff like meditation, um, yoga, especially if you're working for a hospital system, right? Because knowing how things are progressing, everything's becoming more and more about profit. And what's going to happen at the end of the day, 
at the end of the day, um, we generate revenue for the hospital by the number of notes we put out. Mm. And a lot of that is focused on medication management. What medication did we start? Why did we start that medication? Are they having side effects? Are they tolerating tolerating it okay? I'm sure you've written many, many psychiatric notes in the past. Mm -hmm. So these are the typical components that really go into it. So I feel like we're just unfortunately headed towards a medical system where... um, our importance to the team and our role on the team is becoming more defined and is shifting away from uh, the the maybe even the traditional role of psychoanalysis, mindfulness, and just exploring the entire person as an individual, unfortunately, and it's becoming more and more um, centricated on pharmacology. Maybe, you know, but I, I think... I understand that's where medicine and obviously the the warlords of the administration of healthcare want us to go the to dollars. generate profit. But you know, look at what we're doing with this podcast, right? Like, I, I don't look. Yes, someone can go to um, receive their PhD in uh, psychotherapy and become a psychologist, right? And but I wouldn't necessarily say for sure that they're a better teacher in meditation, right? Because meditation at the end of the day is simply a practice of observing and not judging your thoughts, using your breath, using your body to try to improve your mental health. Now, and it takes a while, you know, I get that. And there's not enough psychiatrists to go around. There's so many patients want to see us, want to get benefit from, from interacting with us. I get that. But why can't we record a psychiatrist um, talking about their most passionate thing? You know, one of the things I'm obviously most passionate about is um, meditation, is exercise. What if I just recorded myself and every at the end of every encounter, I obviously don't have time to necessarily go into the spiel, this 30-minute spiel or whatever with every single patient, but we just hand them a little iPad. Hey, Dr. Noon really wants you to watch this video. Check it out. You know, that's that's what I think. It's like, why can't we take more innovative approaches to how we interact with patients rather than just this kind of rudimentary, let's just look at every one of these patients as essentially an economic transaction, which is, I think, kind of what you were describing. I think we need to be more incentivized, not necessarily, you know, see more patients generate more dollars, but the quality of what you produce, the quality, the incentives of the of how well you actually help someone. And I think how well you help someone is also important to the amount of side effects that you don't generate, right? And the beauty of um, meditation most specifically, I mean, geez, what, what are the side effects of meditation? You lose 10 minutes of your day? I mean, it's a whoop de do. Uh, you know, it's, 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 that's why I think we need to start leaning on these things so much more. And, and what's frustrating is I think it's also built into our culture. How many of our patients, when they come to see us and like parents, you know, when I get into the story, I'll tell you, um, yeah, 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 that meditation shit. Yeah. I, but what, what about the medicine? Come on, you're a doctor. You know, it's like, they are looking for that quick fix. And, and that's what I really would argue, like, Look, I know meditation isn't necessarily a quick fix. Maybe it can offer a little bit of relief, what I'm saying in that moment. But if you build a regular practice of meditation every day, it can have some good effects. It really can. I feel like that's the same conversation that um, internal med docs have with their patients, you know, for example, suffering from diabetes. Right. Like, hey, I can give you this medication, but let me take the next 10 minutes and talk to you about some lifestyle modification. How many people are really trying to hear that? Right. Um, probably not Can many. Can you just give me Ozempic? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know? exactly. Yeah. yeah. Like, yeah, they, they're they coming. 
So maybe this is a, a bigger discussion about how people perceive healthcare in general, right? Because even as trainees, we're being taught that healthcare is becoming more and more a service-oriented industry. It's kind of like we have this patient-centered approach, and they tell us what they need, what they're dealing with, and we're supposed to come up with a mag magical solution, right? And mm -hmm. you know, maybe maybe to a certain degree, um, we have this unconscious uh, maybe pressure on us, self-imposed pressure that when somebody's coming to see us, we think um, maybe whether it's true or not, we have this pre conceived notion that they're coming to see us for to be put on medication and you know having that white coat on maybe unconsciously we do feel like our role in that moment is to provide those answers as far as what medications they're on um, but i don't disagree with you that medication uh, that there's other modalities besides medication that are just as good if not superior um like you said right what are the side effects to meditation only your time Sure sounds a hell of a lot better than, you know, the list of things that can go wrong when you're when you start an antidepressant. Um, so I, I, I'm completely in agreement with you there. And, you know, I, I'd love to hear more about that story about, you know, why, why you even wanted to discuss this in the first place. Right. You know, and, and it's now that, you know, when you guys said, hey, you know, I've never really done this with kids. It's kind of almost weird to me. I, I have done this a ton with kids, um, even outside of my role as a psychiatrist. So, you know, behind me, over my left shoulder, I wrote this oh, that's kid's right. book, Let's Go. We all have something, you know. Part of this book I kind of talk about, this book is uh, really best for ages maybe 6 through 12, let's call it. Any patient that's really struggling with any kind of mental health issue, you know, so it's appropriate for them to read with their families. And in this story, I kind of talk about how I, I'm one of the main characters, spoiler alert, um, but how I started practicing my meditation practice. And of course, it's fictionalized, you know, that's not exactly how I did it in real life. But, you know, I've gone to schools, elementary schools, and I've had the opportunity to read this book. Um, if you're listening to this and you would like me to come to your school and read to your students, please reach out to us because I absolutely love it. And part of my presentation when I read this book is I meditate with the kids. And so we'll get into kind of how I explain meditation and, and some of my favorite techniques. But, you know, I, I also believe in the power of storytelling. Wait, hold on, Logan. What is that reception like when you do meditation with these kids? Are oh, it, it is. It is very, very fun. It is very, very fun. So, you know, I guess we'll go into a different story then maybe first. So one of my favorite speeches, I've, I've given a ton of speeches in my life. You know, I've, I've spoke at the NAMI, the National Alliance of Mental Illness, walk in Sacramento in 2013 in front of a crowd of 1,500. I gave um, my commencement address at my medical school. I gave uh, my preclinical um, kind of at the end of two years, we had the ceremony in medical school. I was also nominated to give that public speak as uh, public speech. But I think arguably maybe one of my favorite public speeches is my elementary school. I, I got to give a presentation at it was ages uh, five through maybe eight or nine or something like that, like K through three. Uh, and it's the same elementary school I went to. It was the same. We were in the gymnasium. It was the same gym that, you know, I remember as a kid playing basketball and kickball and in this little gymnasium. And it's very weird going in there as an adult. You're like, oh, wow, this gym is not as big as I remember. It's a professional adult now. <laughs> but so it's wild. You know, we had it wasn't the biggest crowd I've ever spoken to. Um, there was maybe, I don't know. 150 kids in this room and geez, 150 kids sitting down in, in an auditorium, you know, it's wild. Even when I was reading a story, you know, there was chatter amongst the room and all these things. But when I did meditation with these students for only about, oh, I don't know, maybe two minutes or so, you could hear a pin drop. 
you know, and afterwards the kids, you really did get this sense of calm. It was beautiful. It was one of my most satisfying moments, you know, and yes, as arguably, of course, as a physician, but at that day as like as an author, as a role model, um, one of the coolest things I've done. I encourage you to also, you know, you're doing creative endeavors with me right now, June, but I know that you got some more creative juices in you and I'd love to see you do something similar in your career as well. So going back to why I wanted to make this episode, you know, I, I interacted with, um, and obviously I'm not going to give any specific patient inform information, but this was in a role as a psychiatrist, mo more as a friend. And I have this friend who has a daughter who lives with ADHD and also anxiety. The family dynamics of this um, scenario are also challenging as well, because there's a second daughter that's even younger that lives with very severe autism. Um, you know, this autistic person has frequent behavioral outbursts, yelling, screaming, tantrums. Um, at times she will call her sister like very mean names, um, sometimes can even get like physically aggressive, like hitting, pinching. And, you know, the parents, of course, have to spend a great deal of attention and time on this uh, younger sibling who lives with autism, you know, obviously. So this older sibling at times told me she feels ignored. She told me she feels elements of she even used the word anxiety. I was very impressed. She said she feels really worried. She says she gets down on herself because she feels as though her younger sister doesn't love her, screams at her, yells her all these bad things. And, you know, like any nine year old, I would argue, has trouble getting herself motivated and focused um, for, uh, you know, her schoolwork, stuff like that, whatever. I mean, I do think ADHD is kind of overdiagnosed in that population, but that's a discussion for an, another day. But the parents were talking to me like, hey, you know, like, what is your advice on medication? This patient is taking guafacine, old school blood pressure medicine that has been uh, shown to be a little bit helpful um, for ADHD. Um, you know, I personally like this medication more than like kind of the amphetamine derivatives, you know, because of. You know, I, what reasons, I, I'll get into my own opinion, but what are your reservations or I guess reasons to use amphetamines in ADHD? Well, the clinical data suggests that it works better, that right. it just works, you know, especially when you compare it against things like clonidine, guanfacine. Arguably even meditation. Right, right. So there's yeah. real evidence for um, Adderall and other stimulant-based uh, medications for ADHD, right? But the question is, why are these things working? I mean, there's times I feel like it's just like cocaine in a pill form, right? right? These are amphetamines. These are hard medications. They can have side effects such as, um, you know, decreased appetite. You can, you can, it can start to affect your sleep. Um, and especially when you're ta talking about ADHD, that's one of the things that concerns me a lot with stimulant use. Um, I understand you can dose it like earlier in the day, but hey, sometimes if that the medication effects of the medication is lingering around, it's something that's going to keep you awake at night. Right. And compromised sleep can lead to symptoms of ADHD. It can even cause irritability, anxiety, depression, a whole host of issues psychiatrically. Right. So that's that's always one concern that I have. Um, just the just the pure effects um, in terms of the side effects that it can have on an individual, especially when we're talking about children the second concern i mean look maybe this isn't as relevant for pediatric populations but listen i've been to college mm -hmm. we know what we know what like adderall other stimulants in medical being used school for. exactly yeah there's high concerns that it can be um diverged mm -hmm. um it can be sold off i mean i've known people in my personal life where look i have a friend that doesn't really have a job 
mm-hmm. and he has ADHD. Um, does he really? Does he not? I don't know. I'm not his doctor. Um, I, I can't say for sure, right? But he is diagnosed by somebody receiving Adderall on a monthly basis, and he never takes it. He just sells it. Mm. And it's kind of like a lifeline for him. Um, so I do understand that there's stuff like that going on. Um, and generally, I just I just feel like, you know, they're, they're, we always have to be vigilant that we're not over-medicating our children, especially right. with these changing DSM criteria. And I know you kind of mentioned the ADHD one, but that's one where the criteria has changed a whole bunch in the past several um, decades, right? The criteria has gotten softer. It's easier to diagnose ADHD now. Yeah. So I'm just, you know, that, that automatically, the cynical side of me, you know, kind of questions like, hey, is that really... Um, at the heart meant to help our children or are there other perhaps nefarious um, uh, parties that can potentially get involved like the pharmaceutical industry right I, I talk about that all the time on this podcast i'm very skeptical of the motivations of the of big pharma um but i don't think we can debate that there are other um, external parties that have an incentive in getting our children the youngest amongst us um on a drug that I, I bet they hope they that these kids will take for the rest of their lives. So already I have a bunch of different concerns. Um, and at the same time, it's, it's just like, I, I think it just brings it back to your point, right? There's so many other modalities that you can try first, such as meditation, right. um, such as CBT, such as coping mechanisms. But at the end of the day, like that question that you were asked, can I get medication recommendation? I feel like when people see us, when people see the, the letters next to our name, when they see right. the, the word physician on our badge, um, that's what they want to talk to us about. And perhaps um, that's a fault. That's the, the system is at fault. Maybe it's just the culture as a whole. Um, it's not just us that feel um, incentivized to talk about medications, but it's also the people that are coming to seek out our services. Right. So, you know, I asked this, this girl, this patient, you know, so, so tell me, you know, why, what do you struggle with? Like, how do you calm yourself down after your younger sister, you know, maybe calls you names, maybe attacks you, maybe you're dealing with some, some of that worry you told me about where you're having trouble getting yourself motivated to do your homework. Well, I don't know. I, I mean, I can't think of anything. I can't think of, I, I have nothing to say. And I was like, okay. I was like, all right, well, let's talk about that concept of nothing. You know, so I think one of the best ways to introduce this with a patient, with a, especially a child patient, is we're trying to build this idea of the mind-body connection. Realizing that our mind and body are two different things in a sense, but absolutely connected. And this exercise of meditation is trying to use our body to slow down our mind. Now, I like to kind of talk about this idea of nothingness. I mean, some people think of this as like enlightenment, right? You know, like when they achieve enlightenment, they are thinking about nothing. You know, my my honest opinion is I think that's impossible, right? I think I was just about to ask, right. is that even possible? I think it's never possible. Kind of like the idea of perfection, but it's just as simple as, Let's try to chase that. You know, I, I have a lot of patients, even adult patients say, I can't meditate because I can't think about nothing. Well, it's like, well, you're kind of missing the point. You know, it's this pursuit of nothingness. So she, she, well, yeah, but how do I pursue nothing? Okay, so I was like, oh, okay, so here we go. So there's many different ways to pursue nothing, you know, and, and there's, if you go on YouTube, there's different techniques for all these different mindfulness, but especially with kids, there's a few different particular techniques that I really like, okay? First, I think visual, visualization is the easiest one, okay? So I was like, tell me, what's your oasis? Do you even know what oasis means? And she she didn't. 
but she was like, I was like, okay, so tell me what's your, what's your favorite place in the world? Where would you want to be right now? If you could be any place in this world. And she was like, well, I would want to be on the beach. And so we went into how her dream beach would be with warm water, with easy waves. She wanted pink sands and dolphins swimming all around her. No sharks, you know, just dolphins. Nice and peaceful. Yeah. I was like, okay, so. The next time that that sister is yelling at you or attacking you, I want you to find an easy space. And she also said she liked water, you know. So I told her and the parents put on maybe just some sounds of a babbling brook or maybe ocean waves. And actually where we were hanging out, there was this little fountain. So we were practicing some of our meditation together. And I was like, well, just listen to the sounds of the water. And I want you to picture yourself at that beach with the pink sand and the dolphins all around you. Next, we want to really focus on that mind-body connection, okay? Using our breath to kind of slow down our thoughts. And remember, we're never going to be able to achieve nothing. We're just trying to have the pursuit of nothing. We're not judging our thought patterns, but just kind of watching them go by. And obviously, this is extremely hard for a seven-year-old. You know, I think it's impossible to, I shouldn't say impossible, very challenging to have a, a young child Meditate for greater than five minutes, okay? It's hard for me. Right. But let's go after even two minutes, three minutes. Nothing too crazy here, okay? So visualization is kind of one technique. The other technique that is really one of my favorites, I, w I actually did another presentation at a school. And, you know, we were trying to be healthy here. So we brought in grapes, okay? Um, you could do this with any snack. You know, really Oreos, um, ice cream might be a little challenging. I'll explain why. Something that's not going to melt that quickly in your mouth. But what you do is say, okay, we're going to take this grape or this Oreo. I want you to put it in your mouth. Don't eat it. And we're just going to focus on the sensations of what we feel in our mouth. Move it around your mouth. How does it feel on your tongue? How does it feel on your cheeks? Now I want you to kind of slowly bite it. Feel the juices kind of come out a little bit. Be as mindful as possible with this experience of your, that grape or that Oreo or banana, you know, you name it in your mouth. And I've had a lot of great success teaching kids in this modality because it's kind of fun. You know, some of the kids, of course, will goop around. But I, I ate my grape. Can I have another grape? You know, and so whatever. Uh, sure, sure. We'll try another grape, Tommy. No big deal. You know, but that's another one of my favorite techniques. Another technique I really like is this idea of the breath box, I call it. The breath box. Okay. So this is actually what I did when I gave that presentation at that elementary school when I read We All Have Something. So the breath box is a concept of four. You know, any or hopefully any, most uh, pediatric patients can count to four, right? So we're going to breathe in for one, two, three, four. Hold for one, two, three, four, and breathe out for one, two, three, four. Okay? And you just slowly do that over, and I kind of do this motion with my hands. Breathe in for four, hold for four, breathe out for four, breathe in for four, and so on and so on. Kind of the last modality that I've used that I find very, very helpful, and I think that there's absolutely some fantastic YouTube shows on this, um, is a body scan meditation. Do you ever do any body scan meditations? Is that like you start from your head, just kind of scan down, feel like, uh, and you just take notice of how your body's feeling, if any, any area is in pain, you just acknowledge it, keep scanning down. Right. And in a sense, I mean, yes, that, that is what it is. But one of my favorite, at least techniques with it is 
we actually they talk about it a lot in uh, uh, DBT dialectic. Uh, um, I almost said diabolical dialectic behavior therapy, progressive relaxation. Okay. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, starting with your head or starting with your feet, I like to say, okay, so we're going to be focusing just on our breath. But the first thing I want you to think about is your toes. I want you to squeeze your toes as hard as you can and release. Squeeze your heels and the bottom of your feet as hard as your hands and release. Then your calf muscles release and then onward all the way up your body, kind of that contraction of the muscle and then release, working your way all the way up. I think kids really like that kind of approach, because it's something that they can still do with their body a little bit, very analogous to, you know, that that game where we played with like the, the grape in our mouth, um, stuff like that. You know, in my reading online, uh, there's also like belly breathing that some of the experts recommend where you try to breathe in and stick out your belly as far as you far as you can and then breathe out. So, you know, these are some of my favorite techniques that I've tried to use for pediatric patients because, you know, on the other side of the coin, the one thing I really like about the pediatric population, some parents are extremely resistant to the idea of medicine, even when I actually think it could be potentially a beneficial thing. So I think that this, this really can be uh, a helpful modality. Um, is it as effective necessarily as a stimulant in treating ADHD and raising those test scores? Perhaps not in certain scenarios, but there's not any of the side effects. Like you said, there, we don't have to worry about diversion. We don't have to worry about that. This person's going to be put on, um, methamphetamine derivative. And it is absolutely possible, uh, that this person could develop, um, into a stimulant use disorder and get into cocaine and other forms of stimulants. And yes, I know the experts say, yeah, but with the extended release formulary, that's less likely to happen. I get that, but I still, there's a chance that it could happen. It could stimulate or excuse me, suppress their appetite, uh, worsen their sleep, worsen their anxiety. So I am extremely reserved uh, when it comes to stimulants, I, I think I have a bias against it, if I'm being honest. So what I've been told um, and what I've read is that the argument for putting somebody on a stimulant um, when it comes to the concern about uh, future substance abuse is that when you treat somebody's ADHD, you're essentially preventing them from developing a substance use disorder down the line. So it's thought that the symptoms of ADHD can increase um, the possibility that you're going to get um, sucked into, you know, abusing substances. How do you feel about that? Do you like just hearing that just intuitively? Do you feel like, you know, like, do you, are you a little skeptical, basically? Um, I, I mean, I just approach it with, yeah, definitely a dose of skepticism, because I think that's a fair argument in some patients, right? Like some right. patients, it can divert them from perhaps using other substances. But you can't tell me 0% of the time it doesn't end up in that person actually developing into a stimulant use disorder. Like that, there is a risk there. There has to be. Right, right. And, um, you know, I mentioned the story about my friend a little bit earlier on. Um, so, yeah, this is this is a guy who's getting Adderall every month. The reason actually he's not using it is because he actually was abusing them for, for a period of time. Yeah, he actually... Dude, he told me that he was abusing Adderall, didn't sleep for like two weeks and started wow. like hallucinating. Mm. Um, he thought, uh, dude, I can't remember his name, but who's the old guy from Breaking Bad? The badass guy. But anyway, the gangster. Okay. Yeah. But anyway, okay. he thought not he was Walter hearing. Not Walter White? Not, not Walter White. The guy that worked for the for Gus. Kind oh. of his henchman. Yeah. the Some bald guy. Yeah. I the bald guy. I him in my head. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Bad guy. Evil guy. Right. 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 So 
he told me that he was hearing his voice coming out of his phone and he was so scared wow. that he was in tears and he was telling his mom that he needs, you know, they need to get out of the house. Right. Mm -hmm. So this is, um, it's weird hearing about psychosis from a friend versus hearing it from a patient. Right. From a patient, I feel like we always kind of get the watered down version. They're kind of tiptoeing, you know, kind of gauging what they can tell you, what they can't. But right. when you hear it from a friend and you're just asking like any question that you want, it's a completely different kind of picture. Um, so I definitely agree with you. Some people are going to fall into abusing their um, their Adderall. And that's not even just for Adderall, right? That can that can be applied to all different substances out there. That's not a unique thing to the world of psychiatry. It's not it's not a unique thing to treating ADHD. Um, but I will but I will say about um, you know, this topic of meditation is I think one of the most downplayed benefits is um, the ability to work on impulse control. Because mm. as you and I both know, um, ADHD, a big part of uh, the pathology is impulse control, right? That's really what gets you in trouble, right? If you're that kid in the back of the classroom that can't really, you know, focus on doing the math problems, whatever, you know, that may go ignored for a long time. But if you're that kid in the back of the classroom that's having outbursts every other minute, right, right that's going to grab people's attention. So that impulsivity, a poor impulse control um, is really problematic. And I think one of the benefits of meditation is essentially like a lot of the things that you talked about, right? Just mindfulness, being here and now, being here in the present. Um, but what does that really entail? Is It entails acknowledging the thoughts that are coming into your mind. It's acknowledging that your mind, that baseline is active. It's always going to be active. You're always going to have these thoughts that pop in. Like you said, there's no such thing as nothingness. Right. Um, but we just acknowledge it for what it is. And we just bring our minds back to the here and now. So for example, to the body, like when you're doing the body scan, right? So you're essentially acknowledging these, um, these kind of racing thoughts saying that, okay, I see that it's there, but I'm not going to, I'm not going to pay attention to it. I'm going to let it pass. And I'm going to bring myself back to the here and now and focus on myself. So perhaps th the repetition of that kind of activity can increase um, impulse control because at the end of the day, what is it? It's this impulsive thought that pops into your head and you feel the urge to act on it, right? That's what right. leads to the physical manifestation of poor impulse. So perhaps uh, meditation, I'm sorry. Right. Yeah, meditation, not medication, um, is an appropriate answer for trying to tackle some of those issues in a non-invasive and safe way. Right, absolutely. You know, and uh, when you were growing up, did they ever introduce any concepts of mindfulness when you were in school, high school, no, that is? not at all. Grade school, yeah, me yeah. too. When's yeah. the first time you've heard of it? Uh, well, I mean, I don't know about when I've heard of it. When I actually implemented it in my life was after I had my manic episode. Okay. You know, cause then they started teaching me these, these techniques, um, to treat my bipolar disorder. Right. Um, and you know, I didn't really find data on that today. I quite frankly didn't look, but anecdotally, you know, it does help out with especially my irritability when it comes from my bipolar disorder. You know, I live with anxiety, but I think irritability is, uh, <laughs> <laughs> the Trump symptom. Mm -hmm. <laughs> My wife would agree. Um, but, you know, using mindfulness really helps me calm down and doing different. And I, I like to think of uh, meditation is very broad, right? I would argue even like my skiing, my surfing, playing basketball with you, I would argue is a version of meditation. I absolutely agree. But I think that more traditional approaches to meditation is very, very important too. And, um, you know, there is some data that I was looking at 
because now some schools, at least, are introducing mindful-based school interventions. Um, so one of the, the best pieces of evidence that I was looking at was published in Mindfulness Magazine in 2022. Um, this was a collection of 77 studies. It looked at 12,358 students across five continents, so a bunch of different uh, school networks. And what it said, it kind of graded um, this evidence in different grades of quality. So really the highest quality evidence came across outcomes indicated for mindful-based, uh, excuse me, mindful-based school interventions, increased pro-social behavior, resilience, executive function, like decision-making, attention, and mindfulness. These interventions also decreased anxiety, attention problems, ADHD behaviors, and conduct behaviors. So very similarly to what you were describing earlier, kind of that impulsivity to act out, to do something inappropriate. So I do think that, you know, this mindfulness approach can be used across so many different modalities. Now, also kind of interesting in this um, kind of big meta-analysis um, that, you know, whether it was increasing well-being it was actually a little bit mixed. Um, it said that on specifically depression symptoms, that in this particular study at least, that mindfulness had kind of a null effect, which I actually found a little bit interesting. And I'm sure there's conflicting data out there, but I was very surprised by that. I'm also surprised. Um, I don't know. I feel like you can always reference different studies. Right. Maybe this is one of those things like you you set out to look for a certain result and you're going to find a study that supports whatever result that you're looking for. Um, so, I mean, as far as I know, like meditation has been tremendously helpful, at least personally in my own life, you know, right. when I'm feeling a little bit down, a little bit in the gutters. Um, and at least anecdotally, um, I, I know a lot of people have, um, you know, shared the same with me. Um, and I think a big part of that is you know, maybe people have different versions of meditation, right? Meditation is also a very personal thing. How you meditate isn't necessarily how I meditate. Um, so I do know that there's a big correlation between happiness um, and gratitude, right? So, so for some people, um, meditation can be as simple as taking a walk outside and just feeling the breeze and noticing the green leaves that's coming out with the with the arriving spring, right? And just being grateful, just recognizing that and, you know, just saying, wow, the sun feels really great on my skin today. Those green colors on the trees, they're so vibrant and beautiful, right? The little things in life that we take for granted that gets lost in the in the busyness of our day-to-day -day lives from time to time. Um, you just bring yourself back to the moment, to the present, and you acknowledge that there's so many little things that we take for granted and could be thankful for. So perhaps that version of meditation could be a little bit more beneficial when it comes to depression. Um, but I'm still going to be recommending meditation for people that are depressed. I think it's tremendously helpful. And right. again, it's a skill that you carry on. Right. You know, I, I, I hope I've done a good job today kind of convincing you to maybe incorporate this a little bit more into your practice. You know, especially today we were talking about the pediatric population, you know, because I know the, like I said, the warlords of the administration trying to turn a dollar off of our stupid notes. I get that. But I feel like one of the most powerful experiences I've had is when I get to tell patients, you know what? No, I actually don't think a med uh, medication is most appropriate here. I would like to try some different modalities because you're not doing any meditation. You're not exercising. You're not incorporating any kind of sleep hygiene into your life. I want to do all these things first. And if that's not working, yes, we can pursue potentially a medication um, pathway. But, you know, I think a lot of times we discount the really potential negative side effects of a lot of these medicines. You know, 
black box warning. How many times have we been tested on this in our training? Black box warning on selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors for individuals under the age of 18 is it hypothetically can increase suicidal thoughts. Right there, I love telling that fact to parents because it's like, okay, like you have to be aware of this and be aware that this is a possibility. And so that's why I feel so passionate about leaning on these other techniques. Now, I still feel passionate that medication is appropriate. Even with that black box warning, I think it should be used in certain scenarios in certain patients. But there definitely is a culture of overuse of medication, I think, really worldwide, but most specifically here in America. And part of the reason why I want to do this podcast today is to fight against that. Thank you for sharing all that, Logan. Um, I'm relieved, happy, excited to hear that whenever you try these, uh, you know, guided meditations, um, when you're presenting at schools, the audience is so receptive. I'm wondering, maybe, you know, we're living in a world that's fast paced, it's getting faster and faster. We're living in a world of instant gratification. We're living in a world of social media where the news comes to you after a second that the actual event has occurred. We're used to everything going so fast, so instant. So perhaps in this hypermobile environment that we're living in, maybe there is a demand for stillness. Maybe there's a demand for calmness to slow down for a second and to really appreciate how we're feeling in that moment. And perhaps that's what you're getting a glimpse of into, um, you know, when, when you're spending time with these kids at these schools. Um, so perhaps... This is something that needs to be done more often. Maybe we should be giving, especially our youth, more opportunities to be present in the here and now. Right. And once again, if you liked this episode, I strongly encourage you to check out We All Have Something. Um, I wrote this book with my mother. She did the illustrations for this book. It's super cool. It's one of the things I'm most passionate about. Um, if you go on Amazon and type in We All Have Something um, or just type in my name, Logan Noon, you can find that book and uh, get delivered to your house for free if you're a Prime member, at least. So um, thanks again for tuning in. Um, best thing you can do is share this podcast with one of your friends. Yes, sir. All right. Thanks for tuning in.